finally, we are back with a, another episode of the Consistent Calvinism Podcast. In this episode, we're going to go through a, an, uh, an episode, a brief episode that Leighton did, Leighton Flowers, once again, uh, did in basically addressing the common Calvinist argument that how are you not better than your unbelieving neighbor because you believed and they didn't, right? Uh, this argument, as Leighton's going to say, is very common. And um, I happen to believe it is, when properly explained and not taken too far, um, a very good argument. And that's why I'm making this this particular episode, and we're going to go through and respond. What he's going to do is he's going to run through an article that he wrote, however long ago, where he makes five main points in response to this particular argument. So let's go ahead and just jump right in and start hearing uh, Leighton lay a couple things out and then get into his particular article. Hello, and welcome back to Sociology 101. One of the most popular questions that Calvinists will ask non-Calvinists is this, from John Piper. Why did you believe the gospel, but your friend did not? Are you wiser? Are you smarter? Are you more spiritual? Are you better trained? Are you more humble? It's a very popular argument that we're going to be talking about today. Okay, and, you know, he quotes John Piper. The argument has been used by almost every Calvinist who's ever existed. Um, And that's because you have to step back and look at what is being suggested by the free will side. If you have God doing everything he's doing equally across the board for everybody so that there is no difference in God in what he's done for people, it's just all the same across the board, then the differentiating, the ultimate differentiating, determinative, however you want to word it, factor must be then found in the person, right? If, if God's done everything the same for everybody, then you can't point at God and say that God's the reason that one person saved and the other person isn't. You have to be pointing at the person. And so all the Calvinist is doing is looking for what is that determinative reason. And of course, the free will side denies determinism, as you'll see Leighton do here in Appeal to Mystery and talk about... Because as I've pointed out in previous episodes, guys, you cannot admit... You, when you ask the free will position the why question, the most important question that can be asked, why did you do what you did? In this case, why did you believe... As soon as they give an answer, other than, well, I believed because I believed, which isn't an answer. As soon as you give an answer, you have admitted determinism. I pointed this out in episode one. It's blatant, right? The, the, the free will position, when, they are cor- when they're uh, cornered and asked to explain why did you choose what you chose, they're going to have to commit a circular logical fallacy. They're going to have to say, the furthest they can get is to say they wanted to, but then you just ask why did they want to, and what you're going to get is you're either going to get I, I believed because I believed, or I chose because I chose, or you'll get I believed because I wanted to, or I chose because I wanted to, and then why did you want to? Because you chose to want to. You chose to want to choose to want to chose to want to choose to want to chose, and you never get anywhere. It's a circular, endless, illogical thing. Why? Because... They recognize that as soon as they they give a determinative reason, they've lost the debate. Free will doesn't exist, and it's game over. So this is why this is a very... I, I'm making this episode because I take this argument very seriously. John Piper himself is, is quoted here as asking, were you smarter? Did you get it? And they, you know, when you believed and the person standing next to you hearing the same gospel message didn't, you got it and they didn't. And if it wasn't because of something God did or worked in you, then it's something inherently about you, right? It has to be. What is it? Is it because you're smarter? 
spiritual, more spiritually sensitive, you were in a better mood that day, uh, whatever you want to insert in there as an answer to why you believe and they didn't is going to be determinative. And it's going to completely refute your entire free will position, which is why you cannot admit it. So I just want to show that as we go through this. And you'll see, Leighton is a smart guy. He knows and recognizes what I just said. This whole, this whole idea of you cannot admit a determinative reason. He recognizes that. And he is going to himself say, basically, I believed because I believed. And it's a mystery. It's the, the mystery associated with free will. And we just don't need to go any further than that. And this is a popular question because Calvinists think that they can back people into a corner by asking them, well, you must think you're better if you believe the gospel and they did not. If it's not because of God's election, i.e. his choice of you before you were ever created and his effectual grace for you, then it must be some other cause. Correct. It must be some other cause. But I just want to, I might be picking at nits here, but he, he sort of suggests that, well, you must think you're better as if that's really our argument. I just want to clear up really quickly. That's not our argument, right? We're not, at least my, when I make the argument, I'm keeping the emotion out of it, right? I do not believe that the free will proponent that I'm talking to or arguing against believes that they're better. I don't think they believe that, right? And I don't think that they have to believe that in the sense of some sort of moral obligation. All I'm simply pointing out is if free will is true, how is there not grounds to believe that, right? So it's not that you must believe that you're better. It's just how is there not grounds to believe that you're better? Then it must be some other cause. It must be some other determination. What is that thing? What is that thing that determined for you to believe and your friend did not? You must think that you're wiser. You must. Again, must, must. No, that's not the point of the argument, right? The point is what is that determinative reason, right? If God's done everything equally for you that he did to the person standing next to you, then why did you believe and they didn't, right? And, and, and the, the point here is that the free will position, as Leighton will do here, openly affirms, unashamedly affirms that this idea of self-determinism is explicitly teaching that God did not determine that you believe, right? Ultimately, we have to use that word when we have these discussions, ultimately, you did. You determined that you would believe. No, no, nothing else, Right? It wasn't God, and it wasn't the, the things, as Calvinists would say, the things that God was using to bring that faith about, right? The, 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 the Holy Spirit hearing the, the, the gospel, right? These things made it possible for you to believe, but they did not have a determinative connection to your actual believing. It was you with your free will. This is a typical, this is typically one of the first questions a Calvinist will ask a non-Calvinist when attempting to convince them of their doctrine. In fact, when I was a Calvinist for 10 years, I used this argument more often than any other, and it was quite effective. However, I have come to believe that there are at least five significant problems with this line of argumentation. One, Calvinism is actually the only system of all the systems we're talking about, provisionism or, uh, you know, uh, Arminianism or any of the other isms of the whole theological debate over sociology, Calvinism's system is the only one that really teaches, if you think about it, that the believer, the elect one, is better or more capable than the one who refused to believe. Now think about this. This is, this is just demonstrably true. This is not just Leighton Flowers making this unfounded accusation. This is just the claims of the system. Elect people are by nature, better. They're made into better people through effectual regeneration. Right. Now, this gets a little complicated, and it ties directly into the episode I did on human responsibility, the idea of the difference, the important, hugely important difference between natural faculty ability and moral ability, and how moral ability relates to the dispositions 
that people have towards particular people or particular things and how we can say that I can't do something that we can physically do, but we can say I can't do it because of a moral disposition we have, so on and so forth. But look, it depends on how we're going to throw this word better around, right? Because if we're going to consider better in light of, well, believing in one hand and not believing in the other hand, obviously it's going to be better to believe than not believe, right? Of course it is. So are believers, quote unquote, better than unbelievers? Well, if, if that's your reference point, yeah, that's inarguable from either side, right? But the, the entire point here is at least Calvinists have God being the one who, quote unquote, makes us better right? He makes us believers. He makes us to differ, right? He is the determinative reason behind why we believed and our neighbor did not. So at the end of the day, both sides are stuck with believers being quote unquote better than unbelievers, but at least we have God being the one who is making the difference, right? And this is why biblically we're supposed to boast in God and what he's done rather than merely boasting in what God has made possible for us to do. You see the huge difference there, right? huge difference in boasting in what God has done for us and through us and by us effectually in our salvation, all of it, even including our choice to believe, our willingness to come to him, confess our sins, humble ourselves, all of these things we willingly do. Calvinists are strict and strenuous to point out that it is God who has worked all those things and he gets the credit for all of it, right? rather than merely getting the credit for making those things possible for us to come along and do. Well, we boast in God because he made it possible for us to believe. Well, what about your belief? How are you, right? How, how you not then have grounds to boast in your belief if that's not something God worked in you, or you're being humble, or you're confessing your sins? Again, at least Calvinists have God being the, the one who, who is the difference maker, so to speak. So, so far, he's sort of getting into his first point of his article, but he's not really gaining any ground as far as the argument is concerned. So think about this, okay? On Calvinism, God makes some people, the elect, smarter. He makes them more insightful. He makes them understand, able to understand truth. He makes them more humble, and he makes them privileged by a work of irresistible regenerative grace. So on Calvinism, those who believe really are, quote unquote, ontologically better people or more capable people which is why they can believe the gospel and the rest cannot believe it. And this is where I, I have to disagree and really pinpoint the, 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 the language that he's using, okay? Because he's using the word ontological. And this, once again, is only possible to address if you grant a distinction between natural faculty ability and moral ability, right? So we cover this, again, extensively in episode three, the idea of inability to, for example, believe, since we're on that topic, the idea of inability to believe is a moral inability. When Calvinists talk about the inability of the unregenerate person to believe, we're not saying that their belief box, their belief mechanism is shattered so that they can be really wanting to believe, but there's something holding them back, right? We are not saying that unregenerate people lack the faculty of belief. Right? So ontologically, everybody can believe in God. Right? And a lot of people would be shocked to hear me as a Calvinist make that statement because, unfortunately, a lot of Calvinists don't properly explain these things. It's part of the reason I'm doing this, this podcast is I've listened to it for years and it's, I'm, I'm fed up with it. Right? 
I, as a Calvinist, am going to openly declare right here and right now that every human being who has ever existed, who has ever been born, even in the fallen, sinful line of Adam, born and dead in sin, every single human being who has ever existed has been naturally, and I, this, this, this word gets a little confusing because we start talking about sinful nature, and here I am using natural faculty. I'm simply talking about ontology, right? The, the existence of you as a human being, your ontological existence, every human being who has ever existed could have believed in God if they had wanted to. There's the qualifier. And that shows that when I say that unregenerate, an unregenerate person is unable to believe in God, I have not just contradicted myself if you allow me to properly distinguish between a moral inability and a natural one. Right? Naturally speaking, everybody has the faculty of faith. They're constantly believing, whether it's in God or in false gods or false things. There's lots of belief going on. Everybody's always exercising belief, right? Everybody's always exercising love or, or hatred or, or whatever. We, we have these faculties at our disposal. The question is, are we properly using them? Okay? And, and this, this concept is completely reality-based, logical, and scriptural. I gave the scriptures in episode three. Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So question, could they speak peaceably to him, right? Well, there's two ways to answer that. There's a moral sense and a natural sense. Morally speaking, the verse literally says they could not because they hated him. The verse says they could not. And yet would anybody say that they didn't have the faculties to have done so if they wanted to speak peaceably to him? Could they have if they wanted to, hypothetically? Well, of course. They, they all spoke the same language. They weren't mutes. They could have spoken peaceably to him if they wanted to. The exact same concept goes for belief in God, obedience to God, right? Loving God, whatever you want to plug in there. No, the Calvinists are not saying, as Leighton here says, that God makes us ontologically better or that, that people are born somehow ontologically defective as fallen sinners. What we're saying is that our moral disposition towards God as fallen sinners is one of hatred and enmity, as Romans 8 says. This is why Romans 8 can say, the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God, does not submit to his law, there's your choice, indeed it cannot, there's your ability. Now what ability is that? It's a moral one. It's based on the enmity mentioned in the same verse, right? It is because man hates God that they cannot submit to his law. And it's based upon their desire, their, their, their lack of desire to do so. They hate God and they don't want to submit to his law. And you can, you can go so far as to say, therefore, you cannot. It is an inability. It's just of a moral, it's, it's of a moral category, not a natural one, right? Obviously, nobody is forced by some sort of broken faculty in them to, to, to not obey God's laws. We all willingly sin. We all willingly disobey God's laws. It, it's within our natural faculties to obey them. We just don't want to because we're fallen sinners who hate God. That's the point here. So I'm, I'm taking a long time, unfortunately. I don't want to recap all of episode three. You can go check that out. But the point is here, when he says this, let's listen again. So on Calvinism, those who believe really are, quote unquote, ontologically better people or more capable people, which is why they can believe the gospel and the rest cannot believe it. That's just wrong. I'm sorry. And it's based upon a wrong understanding of what is being said. And it's not all Leighton's fault. Guys, I, this is why I'm doing this podcast. It's not all Leighton's fault, his understanding. 
it has a lot to do with Calvinists improperly explaining the difference between natural ability and moral ability. Okay, so to, to sort of try to save some time, let's go back to the, the whole point here. The point here is that Calvinists aren't saying that God makes us ontologically better when he saves us. Okay, we aren't saying that that before we were believers, uh, our, our faith box was broken and then God magically fixes it. So now we can do something that the unbelievers can't do. What we're saying is that we can do something the unbelievers could do if they wanted to. But the reason that we want to is because God changed our heart. He regenerated us, filled us with the Spirit, and the automatic response of a regenerate heart is to love God and to follow God and to confess sins and humble themselves and all the things that Leighton later on in this episode is going to point to and quote verses where everybody's humbling themselves and he assumes free will into all of that. The Calvinist says, no, those, that is the, the result of the things that God works in us, right? So God is not making us ontologically better people. God is, God is changing our hearts so that we merely desire and want to do the things that unregenerate people don't want to do but could if they wanted to. I know that's long and slightly complicated, but I hope you guys, I hope I've done at least enough of a, of a, of a job to be able, for you guys to be able to see that distinction. It's an important distinction. And it, it, if, if it's properly understood, which maybe I'm falling short in my explanation, but if it's properly understood, it undercuts his point here that, that Calvinism has believers being ontologically better. No, we do not. What we have are people wanting to do what unbelievers don't want to do, but could do if they wanted to do, namely believe and confess and humble and on and on and on. But we ascribe all the credit to God, right? It's not a change. It's not an, a, a, a moral change that we could bring about in ourselves. God had to make that change in our hearts. And, and the result of that change is that we want to use our faculty of faith that we've always had since we were born that we could have used this whole time to believe in God, but just didn't want to because we hated him. Now we use that very faculty of faith to properly believe in him because we love him and we want to believe in him. Same thing goes for loving God, obeying commands, all of these things. When you're talking about a moral category, every person who's ever been born could do these things qualifier if they wanted to. And to make a long story short, and the idea of responsibility, that is the basis for responsibility. But, you know, if I keep going, I might as well have just replayed episode three for you guys. I apologize. But it's so important. That point is so important. But let's uh, let's keep going. Which is ultimately for reasons beyond their control. In other words, an individual, your friend, can't control whether he's elect or not. He can't control whether he's been graced with his effectual grace or not. Well, that's true. Uh, on, on the ultimate level, as I've made clear in numerous times before and in, 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 in all the past episodes... Of course, we are not in ultimate control. God is in ultimate control. And it blows my mind that some Christians, well, actually, most Christians, any free will Christian, would, would disagree with that and say, no, actually, God's in ultimate control of some things, maybe most things, but you actually have some sort of level of ultimate control. But what I constantly try to point out to the free will side is that whether you want to admit it or not, both sides are stuck with God being in ultimate control, right? So he says, well, they're not in ultimate control. They're not in ultimate control of whether or not they're elect or whether they receive grace. And that's no different than pointing out that you're not in control of whether or not you exist, right? You didn't choose to be created. God didn't check you with you first before he created you just to ask if, you know, here, here's what's going to happen in your life. Would you like to be created, right? 
this was ultimately all beyond your control. If you want to bring that ultimately keyword into this, which has to be done on these topics, you didn't choose whether or not to exist, right? And, 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 and if God creates you, for example, knowing all you'll ever do is hate him and go to hell, you didn't, you didn't choose to be created because you're not on that ultimate level. So anyways, made this argument before, don't have time for it here, but I just want to point out that if, if you consider that to be an argument against Calvinism, that, well, people didn't choose to be elect or not elect, that's no different than pointing out that people who end up hell didn't choose to be created when you, when you, when you stop and think about it, ultimately, right? It's the same quote-unquote problem. God knew they would end up in hell before he created them. He chose to create them anyways, didn't ask them if they wanted to be created. He could have created them differently. So how is your side not stuck with the same logical fact? Why can't the person who ends up in hell say, God, why didn't you check with me first and just, you know, if you had, if you had asked me, let's just pretend that I could be consulted before I existed by God, and, and it was up to me whether or not I'm going to exist. Do you think anybody who ended up in hell would, would, would choose to, to be created if, they, if that's what God revealed to them? If God could somehow reveal to people before they exist, say, hey, I'm going to create you, you're going to hate me your entire life and go to hell and suffer for eternity, would you like to be created? Is anybody going to say yes? Of course not. But, and, and of course, this is an absurd example, but it shows the, the logic behind why, I don't understand why the other side does not see this problem on their side. They, they avoid it constantly. They pretend it's not even there. And yet it's blatantly there. God creates people he knows will hate him for, for their whole lives and go to hell. And it's up to God whether they exist. It's not up to the person. So ultimately it's up to God, period, period. There's no way around that. It's, there's no way around that. And it just blows my mind that people, they, they close their eyes to it. They ignore it. They avoid it because they, it's so obviously true, right? That any, not just Christian, any theistic system is stuck with that, that, that problem. That God exists on the ultimate level and you don't. And anything you can point to that you did, that you think is this magical free will choice, is still ultimately only coming about because God brought you into existence. If God hadn't created you, you wouldn't have done it. So how could you have ultimately determined it? It makes zero sense. Right? And that's just that's just the bare creative act of God. If even if you could find a way out of that, you still are stuck with the idea of God being the sustainer, as I have pointed out continuously. God upholds the universe by his power. The verse is always true. God upholds your existence by his power moment by moment by moment. The next moment of time, including what you do, cannot even come to pass unless God exerts the power so that it can come to pass. Then ultimately what you do is still up to God, right? If God didn't want you to do what you did, he could just not exert the power necessary for you to be able to do it. Uh, you can't get out of that. And even if you wanted to try to get out of that and adopt some sort of actual semi-deistic position where God creates you as a self-sustained thing and then metaphysically lets go of you so that Hebrews 1.3 and the idea of living and moving and having your being in God and God upholding your existence is not required. You actually are self-sustained if you want to go that far. Even then, right, semi-deistic dualism, you're your own ultimate causative power. Even then, God's more powerful than you and he could have stopped you from doing anything you did, right? Even the idea of permission necessitates determinism in the sense of if you don't stop something, you are determining that it happens. It's still ultimately, you're the ultimate choice. There's just no way around this stuff, guys. And and I, I'm, I'm sorry to flip out and go ranting on and on and waste time. But when I hear those sorts of attempted arguments that it's just, it's and it's so emotional. Oh, it's just those poor sinners. It was beyond their control to their born God haters. We covered that in episode three and blah, blah, blah. Both sides are stuck with 
God being in ultimate control when you stop and think about it. On Calvinism, this regenerative grace isn't given, excuse me, is given unconditionally and is not in any way merited by the elect. But that does not change the fact that upon being regenerated, the elect are made ontologically. In other words, by the very nature is changed and made into a better person. And again, it depends how you're going to define the idea of nature or ontology, right? And I've, I've tried to point out that it's wrong to say that we gained a faculty that the unregenerate do not have. If that's what you mean by ontological, you are incorrect. Okay, I'm trying to, trying to be nice about it. And it, you know, again, it's not totally Leighton's fault for saying it the way he's saying it. Calvinists are not clear enough on this issue. When you are regenerated, you do not gain the faculty of faith. You didn't, it's not like you, you couldn't believe period before, but now you can believe because God gives you the faculty of faith, right? That's not what we mean when we say God grants that we believe or works faith in us. What we mean is God changes our heart so that we choose willingly to use the faculty of faith we've always had and have been wrongly using our entire lives to believe in God. That is not being made ontologically better, okay? That is being simply having your heart changed so that you are correctly using, so that the idea of betterness is now moved on to what you're doing. And I've already pointed out and admitted, as both sides must, that yes, if you're believing, believing is better than not believing. So you are made, I suppose, to do better, right? You're made to believe rather than not believe. So you are made by God to do better. But I reject the idea that you are made ontologically better by God in in the sense of him giving you something that that is is giving you a faculty that that uh, other people do not have right he is he's making a change in you he's he's changing your heart so that you willingly choose to use your faculty in a better way than other people do but he's not making you ontologically better and therefore more capable with a new and better nature or a new heart you'll hear calvinist often say that you have to be given a new heart in order to confess your sins and to believe that's correct and i've made the distinction there between the fact that an old unregenerate heart still has a faculty of faith, it's just being misused, and a new regenerated heart has that same faculty of faith just being properly used, okay? That's what I'm trying to be clear about, and if, you know, I just, I'm just trying to be clear about that. Um, in, in order to trust in God, you've got to be given a new heart first. You've got to be made alive, regenerated, in order to believe the gospel. So in other words, you have to be made into a better person in order to believe. So, and Again, I, I reject that. Right, you do not have to be, you do not have to be given something, in the sense of a faculty, right? That that it's not like, well, I need to fix my car, but I don't have the right tools, and so my friend comes along and gives me the tools, and now I can fix my car, so I've been made better. That's not what's going on. The point is, I need to fix my car. I have all the tools. I just would rather be using those tools for other things right now, until my friend comes along, slaps me outside the head, and says, hey. You know, you need to fix your car so that you can go to work and take care of your family. And okay, now all of a sudden I want to properly use those tools I've always had to fix my car. Crazy, stupid example I just thought up. But I think it serves the purpose of showing that God is not granting a faculty to people that they didn't already have. He's changing their hearts so that they will want to properly use the faculty they've always had. I'm sorry to repeat this over and over it is so important. That's 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 why I'm doing it. I have to, I have to beat this drum. Have to. It's ironic that John Piper asked this question because actually it's only on his system that the person is literally a better person 
as a naturally a better person, which is. Uh, I, and I think that's false. I think that I've shown um, that that they're not ontologically a better person. The best you can say is that they're doing better. They are using their faculties they've always had, the same faculties the undergenerate people had. They're using them in a better way. That's the best you can say. And I fully admit that. I fully grant that. And once again, at the end of the day, ascribe credit to God. God gets the credit. Uh, then their unbelieving counterpart, which is interesting. So on provisionism or traditional Southern Baptist theology, as I hold to, or even Arminianism for that, for that matter, um, all people have the necessary insight and moral capacity to respond willingly to God's appeal. Now, there may be nuances as to how different Armenians and provisionists may argue as to why we have those capacities, whether it's from creation that God created us in his image, uh, that we have a God-given conscience that he gives us to be able to, to respond willingly to truth uh, versus a provenient working of grace that somehow uh, makes us into people that are able to understand truth again, again, various reasons and ways in which people may uh, do this. But, but all non-Calvinists believe that everyone has eventually, by, by provenient grace or by uh, the God-given nature within us, a moral capacity to respond willingly to God's appeal. See, and that's where he uses the word moral, but he's using it in a different way than I have been. What he meant to say there, or what he should have said there, or what he was actually presenting there, was a natural faculty ability, not a moral ability. Okay? What he just laid out was that even non-Calvinists, or, or not even, but all non-Calvinists believe that man has the ability to believe— but what do you have to insert there? If they want to, right? So the ability's always been there, right? Even in the non-Calvinist viewpoint, everybody has the ability to believe because they have the faculty of faith, which is what he just laid out. But he's calling that moral ability when it's not. Moral ability deals with wants and desires and dispositions. So once again, Joseph's brothers could not speak peaceably to him, right? Why? Not because they couldn't speak, but because they hated him and did not want to. That's the answer. That is a moral ability, not a natural one, right? And so even Calvinists believe that everybody who's ever been born has the ability to believe in God if they want to. If they want to, right? You have to grant the distinction between natural and moral ability. And if you don't want to grant the distinction, that's that's why... Leighton does not, he uses the word moral, and he'll use the word, you know, natural ability, moral, he'll use the phrases, but he's not actually granting a distinction between those two things. Because he's going to say, or as he just said, all man has the moral capacity, is his phrase, the moral capacity to believe in God. But the phrase is, if they wanted to, right? I mean, even the free will side would have to admit that the ability is there, but it has to be accompanied by a desire, Correct. You have to want to use your faith, your ability to believe. You have to want to use that ability properly, right? And believe in God. You have to want to do that, right? Well, of course. But what does the Bible say about what man wants in places like Romans 8? The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law because it doesn't want to, obviously. And the conclusion, therefore, is it it, it cannot, right? Uh, you know, Joseph's brothers didn't couldn't, you know, couldn't speak peaceably to him, not because they couldn't speak, but because they didn't want to, you know? So I would, I would just point out that, yeah, everybody has the ability, but it's accompanied by, has to be accompanied by the moral idea of wanting to use that faculty properly. Okay. Thus, all are truly without excuse. 
one is not ontologically better than the other on, on our views. Okay. They are, it is on Calvinism, but on our view, no, they, they are actually on the same playing field. Okay. So therefore they are without excuse because everyone has everything they need to believe in God. Right. And again, as I've, as I've already laid out, this is why Leighton comes away thinking that in his view, people are without excuse, but in Calvinist's view, they have an excuse. When, as I've just laid out, even Calvinists should be saying, even though most of them don't properly explain, but even Calvinists believe that everybody has what they quote-unquote need to believe, right? They can all believe in things. They have the faculty of faith. It's always been there. They've just been misusing it, right? Just like I might have all the tools needed to fix my car in front of me, right? The only, standing, the only thing standing between me fixing my car is my wanting to fix it. I've got all the tools. The question is, do I want to use them properly or not? Well, that's exactly what is going on with fallen man. Fallen man has always had the quote-unquote tools necessary to believe in God, obey God, love God, humble themselves. All the tools have always been there. They just have not wanted to properly use those tools. And so we have plenty of room for the basis of responsibility and being without excuse in our worldview. It's all there, right? It's all there. This is due to the fact that everyone is created in his image. Uh, as image his image bearers in a world where his truth is made abundantly clear and believable, as Romans 1, I think, teaches. And there's no argument there, right? Calvinism has plenty of room for that. Everybody's created in God's image. Uh, his, his attributes are revealed in creation. Everybody knows God exists. They're without excuse. Yes? On provisionism, no one can fall back on the excuse that God did not make them morally capable to respond positively to his own appeals or insightful enough to understand and accept plainly spoken truth like they can on Calvinism. Right, and again, that quote-unquote excuse that Leighton thinks exists in Calvinism is on the ultimate level, and it's the same excuse that would exist in his worldview. He just doesn't want to see it, right? Why didn't God, God, God created me knowing I would, I would only ever hate him and end up in hell, right? Why, isn't, why doesn't the, the person who ends up in hell have that excuse that God could have created them differently, different time, different place, different parents, then they, they might have ended up in heaven. Again, who's in ultimate control of these things? It's God. On provisionism, the fall doesn't cause humanity to become morally incapable of accepting God's appeals to be reconciled from that fall. We do not believe that has ever been established biblically. And there's there's just too much to get into there. I'll have to I'll have to cover that point. The idea of what is the result of the fall um, in in another episode. But obviously, for Calvinists, the result of the fall is not lack of faculties. It is not broken, you know, natural you know natural faculties that are broken. What it is is a whole bunch of people that are perfectly naturally capable of doing a lot of good things who just don't want to, right? They could believe in God. They just don't want to. They could humble themselves. They just don't want to. They could love God. They just don't want to. Why? Because they hate God. They're hostile toward him. They hate good and love what is evil. And therefore, they choose to wrongly use the tools that God has given them from the start. This Calvinistic argument may sound pious because it's attempting to give all the credit to God for all the good things, but in so doing, it inadvertently gives God all the blame for the bad and removes any real semblance of human responsibility for unbelief. Now, this statement has elements of truth in it, but then also elements of false conclusion. In other words, what he's basically saying here is that if God is in control of all things, then he is morally, right, morally culpable or, you know, being committing some sort of moral evil if he is in control of, for example, evil. 
And what I pointed out in previous episodes is that God, as a transcendent creator and sustainer, can most certainly be in control of all things, including evil. And yet, it doesn't make him evil because, again, evil is the breaking of laws. There's no law that says God can't control sin, can't plan sin, can't purpose sin, can't determine sin. Uh, You know, nobody gave God any laws. But it's also important to point out that there's two senses in which things can be said to be happening or occurring or being done. And so I want to back up just, just for a moment and try to explain something very simply. Let's pretend for a moment that nothing exists. Let's all, let's all pretend that we're going to be God for a moment, right? Or I'll just talk about myself. If nothing exists, and I'm going to create two simple things. I'm going to create two objects, right? Billiard ball A and billiard ball B. I create them. They exist. They're real. And again, consistent with my position, I did not, well, I did not only create them, but according to Hebrews 1.3, I uphold their existence by my power at all times, okay? So billiard ball A and billiard ball B exist. Now, I want to cause those two objects that I've created to have a particular interaction. I want billiard ball A to smash into billiard ball B so that billiard ball B moves, right? So I, by my power, my sustaining causative power, bring that interaction about. Billiard ball A smashes into billiard ball B, billiard ball B moves. Now, simple question, why did billiard ball B move? Okay, stop and think about it. There's two answers to that question. The first answer is, I caused it, right? As the creator sustainer, the transcendent creator sustainer, I caused it to move, didn't I? But is that the only answer to that question? Because if you're going to consider the creation level, the, the, the quote-unquote storyline level, didn't Billiard Ball B move because Billiard Ball A smashed into it? Well, the answer to that question is, of course. So there's two senses in which we can understand this idea of God being, you know, quote-unquote to blame for the good and the bad. There is a transcendent creator sustainer level, and there is a storyline level. So keeping this billiard ball example in mind, when we just bring this into this broad spectrum of all of creation, right? You can go categorically down the line, and I'll do this exhaustively in future episodes. This is such a critical, important point, and one, one of the points that really caused me to wake up into what I believe a more consist, is a more consistent Calvinistic position is that you just go out. Let's let's talk about the weather for a moment. The Bible says that God brings the rain, brings the wind, and the snow, and all the all the good stuff. The sun rises, and all this stuff. God is behind it all, right? So when I ask why does it rain or why did it rain yesterday, what's your answer to that question? You could answer it two ways. You could say because God brought it. You could say because God caused it to rain. That would be a true answer. If you're considering God as a transcendent creator sustainer. But didn't it also rain because the sun evaporated water, right, into the air, and then it condensed and became heavy and fell back down? Didn't it also rain for those reasons? Of course. Of course it did. But you can see the point, that both of those things are true. And it's only when you try to distort or ignore the distinction between those two real answers, categorically different answers, yet they're both true, that you can make this statement that, well, God's just morally to blame for everything, both the good and the bad. And so when you're going to talk about moral blame, right, that can only exist on the storyline level. It can only exist on the storyline level. It has no place in the transcendent creator-sustainer category of God, right? And and if you, if you, once again, even if you're on the free will side and you're thinking, oh, but, you, but, you know, God is morally to blame or this or that, once again... Hebrews 1.3 says God upholds the existence of you at all times. 
He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Acts 17.28 says that in God you live and move and have your being, and that's always true. So how do you even escape that God on the transcendent level is upholding your existence while you're sinning, and yet he's not morally culpable for your sin? Your sin, the great irony, everybody wants to distance God metaphysically from sin, and yet sin itself, your sinful actions, cannot even come to pass unless God, your creator and sustainer, supplies the, the, the sustaining power for those things to come to pass. So why isn't God culpable? Why isn't God to blame for your sins? And the only way to answer that question is you're forced to admit that it's a separate category, right? God in the transcendent creator-sustainer position, is has there's no, there's no laws that says he can't do those things. There's no laws that says God can't cause sin, determine sin, plan sin, or even in your view, there's no law that says that God can allow sinners to sin by continuing to uphold their existence, right? You would point that out and say, well, it's a separate category. So you have to allow that for the Calvinist side as well. God in the transcendent creator-sustainer position is said to be doing things, all things, yes, causing all things, yet that is not a moral category. So what is the moral category? The moral category is on the storyline level, right? So Calvinists can say that, yes, God is the cause of all things, but on the storyline level, we can ascribe the good things to God because of the way he works the good things and the bad things to man because of the way he works the bad things. Once again, going back to the billiard ball example, why did billiard ball B move? It moved because I caused it to, but it also moved because of billiard ball A. Isn't billiard ball A to blame, to quote unquote blame on the storyline level for billiard ball B moving? Of course it is. It's unavoidable that it is, right? It's, that is also a valid answer. So when we stick to just a storyline level where only morality can, morality and the idea of evil and sin can exist in the first place, Right? Sin is the breaking of the law of God. That happens in time, in creation, as, as creation unfolds on the storyline level. Sin is attributed to man on the storyline level. Sin, man is the one sinning, right? God might be ultimately causing it all, but on the storyline level, it can still be said that man is sinning, right? It can still be said that billiard ball A is, is causing billiard ball B to move, right? And so... We can ascribe the bad to man and the good to God on the storyline level. I, I tried to lay that out as briefly as I could because otherwise we're going to get way too long, but I'll make a separate episode for that concept where I, will, where I will go through the Bible exhaustively and show different categories, whether the animals, the hearts and minds of men, where God can be said to be doing it all and is said by Scripture to be doing those various categorical things. And yet when you ask why those things happened, you can also say they happen for storyline-level reasons. Unbelievers cannot rightly say, quote, I could not believe because God withheld his provision, love, and grace from me. It was beyond my control because I was born rejected by my maker. Notice, it was beyond my control because I was born. That's true of everybody. Your being born was not in your control. And in a condition whereby I could only hate and reject God's appeals. No. What if you were born? What if God created you knowing that's all you would ever do? Can you do otherwise? Ultimately, no. Unbelievers stand without excuse as blameworthy sinners because they are freely rejecting. In other words, freely meaning they could have done otherwise. And see, freely in the sense of just doing what you want isn't a good enough definition for Leighton, right? Freely has to be free will, ability to do otherwise. But in what sense could you have done otherwise? If God created you knowing you would only ever hate him, could you have loved him? Ultimately? 
and this is where even the free will side, guys, forced to admit that ultimately, if God knows that you'll never love him, you can't actually ultimately love him, period, end of discussion. But they would have to shift and say, as I have myself said, that there is a hypothetical sense in which you could have. And it's all based on the faculties, once again. The faculties were there for them to have loved God if they had wanted to, right? But that is a separate category, and that is a separate category from the ultimate category, and the the idea of responsibility is tied to the, the not the ultimate category, but the, the moral category, the hypothetical faculty category. People are responsible, not because they could have ultimately done otherwise. People are responsible because they could have hypothetically done otherwise if they had wanted to. And even a free will side has to admit that. But I want to cover, get, get moving here, you know, jumps, I'm going to jump to point two. Believe it or not, that was only point one, but don't worry. Uh, the other points are a lot, lot, lot more brief. Uh, let's get started with point two. Point two, a decision to put trust in the merit of another for salvation does not itself merit salvation. Let that sink in, okay? Confessing that I can't merit my salvation is not something that merits my salvation. Now, he's absolutely right. And this point I consider completely irrelevant to the argument. The argument has never been that you are meriting your salvation. I know that there are Calvinists who would try to take it that far, but my point is that this is not or should not be the point of the argument. The point is not that you are gaining or earning something in the eyes of God because you believed and someone else didn't, right? That's not the point. The point is simply, once again, that we have to address why you believed and they didn't. Okay, so I, I, I hate to just be so dismissive of the second point, but I think it's a distraction away from the entire argument to begin with, because nobody should be saying that if free will is true, you are earning your salvation. No, nobody should be saying that. I think it's a, I'm being fair by saying it's a misrepresentation of the position and it's going a little too far. Okay. Admitting that I can't save myself is not something that saves myself, okay? If it were, then there would be no need for the cross, all right? What is the underlying motivation for asking the question, why did you and not another? The implication seems to be that one who makes the libertarianly free decision to accept the gospel appeal is quote-unquote meriting or earning or more deserving of salvation, i.e. they're wiser, they're smarter, more intelligent, more humble, more gifted. They deserve it somehow. They're meriting it somehow. And I just think this is false. He says this seems to be the implication of the argument uh, I'm sorry you feel that way, but that is not how I am using the argument, right? The point is not even when we're talking about boasting, grounds for boasting, the point is not that you, if, if free will is true, the point is not that if, if God has done everything he's done equally for everybody and so the difference is found is you, therefore you can boast to God. The point is that you have grounds for boasting against over against other people. It, we're looking at this as a horizontal argument, right? It's you versus another person, rather than you before God. And so once again, I, I, I can, I'm, I'm going to basically dismiss this second point outright because I think it's a distraction away from the primary argument. He's, he's making this assumption, maybe, and again, there's probably Calvinists out there who have said this, but they shouldn't be, right? The point of this argument is not to, to try to pin a free will position to be meriting salvation, okay? That's a very weak use of this argument. The point is that <clears throat> you have grounds for boasting and potentially being considered to be better than the people around you, right? 
It's not, we're not looking at it vertically between you and God. We're looking at it horizontally between you and other people. Now, I will make a sub-point out of this point and say that if you want to look at it vertically between you and God, I will say that the free will position does logically necessitate the fact that God is unable to save you without your, your effort, if you want to call it effort. I'm not going to accuse you of your position of, 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 of having effort merit salvation, but I will say that without your effort, God can't save you. That is, that is a logically necessary aspect of the free will position. God has made it possible. He's done everything he's done equally for everybody. But you're not saved until you participate, cooperate, right? God's made it possible, but you need to bring it about. So, um, again, I'm not saying this in the sense of you merit your salvation, but I will say that without your cooperation, God can't save you. Now, you're going to say, well, of course he could if he wanted to do it that way or the Calvinist way, but he's chosen to do it this way. And this is what's funny is the free will position, anytime a limitation of God is presented by a free, against a free will position, in other words, anytime somebody points out how free will of man will limit God in some respect, the free will side can just say, well, that's okay because that's how God wanted it to be. <laughs> you know, like they can just move it over, move the, the point over and say, oh, that's okay because God wanted it to be that way, right? Which is, is funny because you're going to do a lot of damage to the intelligence and wisdom of God when you go down that road. Because what you're basically saying is that God willingly chose to create billions of people he knew would never participate in his little salvific system, right? So he did all the things he did for them. He died for them, sent the gospel to them, tried to convict them with the Holy Spirit. God did everything he, you know, to, that you say he's doing equally for everybody, and yet he did that for people he knew would never accept him. So God, and you're going to say, oh, that's okay, because that's God wanted it to be that way. So God wanted to not get what he wants most of the time, right? God wants everybody to be saved, but he also wanted to set up a system whereby he's billions of people aren't going to be saved. So he wanted to not get what he wants most of the time. And you're okay with that. Right? I think it's sad that you're okay with that. But what this goes to show is that anytime you point out a limitation of God because of free will, they can say, oh, but that's okay because that's a limitation God imposed on himself, basically. God wanted things to be this way. He wanted to give men free will and wanted to make things possible and wanted to blah, 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 right? I mean, God can throw out the life preserver, right? But without your effort, if you want to call it that, without your grabbing a hold of that life preserver and holding on while you're dragged in, right? The person throwing you life preserver can't save you. They can't save you without your cooperation, right? In the free will viewpoint, that is necessitated. Not saying that merits your salvation, but it's unavoidable that without your effort, God can't be your savior. And so back to the point, this point two, uh, Leighton takes quite a while on it by going through and showing that, you know, a repentant person is no more deserving of salvation than a non-repentant person, and that's all fine. So I'm going to skip over that point and just consider it to be a distraction, and not an intentional distraction on Leighton's part. Again, there are probably Calvinists who have caused him to think that we mean this by this argument, but I want to just boldly claim and put my foot down and say, this is not the point of this argument. The point of this argument is not that you're meriting your salvation, okay? 
So let's move on to point three. Three, question begging fallacy. This is the fallacy of the question. This is the fallacy of the argument itself. In other words, if you can prove that an argument is fallacious, you've disproven the argument. The argument has no weight any longer. This proves that John Piper's uh, and many Calvinist argument, the most popular argument they employ, an argument I employed as a Calvinist myself, is a fallacious argument. Now, listen very carefully to this, because I reject everything he just said, that this is a question-begging fallacy. Listen closely. Follow this. The question above is tantamount to asking what determined the response of you and your friend. In other words, why did you choose to follow Christ and your friend did not? What is, what is the question? What determined for you to do this? Precisely correct. Pointed this out at the beginning of the episode. It is a perfectly valid, logically necessary question. It is not a fallacy. What determined you to believe and your friend to not believe? And your friend. What determined for your friend to reject Christ and what determined for you to accept Christ? Do you hear the fallacy? Listen. As if something or someone other than the responsible agent themselves made the determination. And the, the way this is worded is a little strange. Someone or something other than the determiner made the determination, right? So, first of all, nobody is denying, even determinists, nobody's denying that you actually made a determination as a responsible agent, as he puts it. You make choices. You choose things. Nobody's denying that. All we're asking is why you chose what you chose, okay? And any answer you're going to give, even if you want to, as he is saying here, uh, the, the, the chooser is the cause of their choice. Well, that's step one, right? You chose what you chose. I'm simply asking you to go further than that. You want to stop it there, right? Because you know if you go any further than that, you admit determinism. But I'm asking a basic question that anybody has, could ask of, of a particular choice. Why did you choose what you chose? And even if you keep that first uh, answer within the person, such as they wanted to, I mean, I really do wonder, could I, could I get Leighton to at least admit that people do things because they want to, right? But, but I think he knows that once he starts down that road of giving answers to the why question, I can keep asking why, why, why. And as I've already pointed out, at some point, he's going to have to commit that logical circle, right? Well, why did you want that particular thing, right? And he's just going to have to say, because you chose to want it. He's just going to keep inserting a, a layer of choice and just commit, commit that circular fallacy. You wanted to choose to wanted to choose to wanted to choose, right? Because you can't go any further than that without losing the argument. But we just need to ask simple questions. That's basically just saying, you know, it's a non-answer. Why did you do what you did? Because I did it. Or what's the, what's the cause? What's the reason behind why you did what you did? Me. I'm the reason. Well, that's not an answer, right? So when I ask you why you ate something, right, are you just going to say, because I did? Are you just going to say, because me, right? Is, is, that, is that even beginning, coming close to beginning to answer the question? Of course not, right? Uh, didn't you eat it because you were hungry or it tasted good or someone told you to try it or you wanted to try something new or, you know, whatever that reason is, you ate it for, you ate, you ate that particular thing for a reason, a determinative reason. And even if you want to, for the sake of argument here, completely isolate a particular person from everything external to them when they're making a choice, which I think is illogical and impossible to do, but let's pretend you could. Even if you want to just focus on the person themselves, you still have to give an answer as to why you chose to do something. There's all sorts of reasons from within yourself that, that, that are linked to and tied to and determinative of your choosing. You cannot separate your choice from your desires. You can't do it. You, you choose what you choose because you want to choose it. 
right? You can't separate your choices from your current state of mind, whatever, what mood you're in. You can't separate your choices from your past experiences. You can't separate your choices, you know, not to be harsh, but you can't separate your choices from your thought process and deliberation and how intelligent you might be and how you might consider various uh, problems in life or, you know, it's, it's a very complex topic, but the point is you don't just get to say, I chose it because I chose it. You don't just get to say the only cause of a choice is the chooser. You've, you have to give reality-based reasons, right? Even if you're focused just on the person, there's all sorts of reasons within that person that are going to determine what they do. What, what he's left with, as you're about to hear, is I just did it. If free will is true, you did it because you did it. And that's the only answer you need to give. And yet, when have you ever in your life, aside from being a six-year-old child who just said, oh, because I, I did it, when have you ever in your life given that as a reason to why you did something? You've never given that reason, ever, right? Ever. You've always given determinative reasons, whether it's because you wanted to, whether it's because you were in a bad mood, somebody made you angry, whether you were hungry or you needed this or needed that. There's always, always, always been a determinative reason as to why you did something. And to call that a question-begging fallacy is absurd. It's asking, what determined, besides you, what determined for you to do this? Correct. What determined for you to want to do what you did? Perfectly valid reality-based question. Questions that we answer all the time in daily life. The question presumes that determinism is true and that libertarian free will self-determination is not possible, which is a textbook question-begging fallacy. And this is the irony of his accusation that our question is assuming determinism and begging the question. Our question, right, is actually going upon the free will's position's claim. In other words, free will claims God is not the differentiating factor. Nothing outside the person is the differentiating factor. And our question comes along and says, well, if that's true, right? If, if we're assuming anything, we're assuming what you're claiming, that it's just found within the person. Well, if that's true, then why did you believe and they didn't, right? So I need you to give me a reason that is found in you as to why you believed and they didn't. And this is what Leighton is going to refuse to do. He's going to appeal to mystery, right? He can't even... Even though I think I could get a, I could get him to admit, yeah, they did, they, they believed because they wanted to. He he not, he doesn't even he doesn't even admit that. He he knows that if he says something like, well, they were in a better mood that day, that's why they believed, or well, they were smarter, they understood it more, they were more intuitive, that's why they believed. Notice all of those reasons are found within the person, right? I'm not making the assumption that something outside of them is making the determination. I'm asking you, the question itself, the argument itself, is coming against the free will position and, and saying, if your position is true, if the only reason for a belief versus unbelief is found in the person, what is that reason? And I just think it's really strange for me to be accused, as a determinist, to be accused of making assumptions um, and begging the question when I ask why somebody did something. It's wrong for me to assume that people do things for reasons, right? It's wrong for me to assume that people act on their desires and that those desires throughout the course of their life are determined by things like their current mood, their state of mind, uh, whether or not they're drunk or high or sober, uh, their past experiences in similar, in similar situations and decisions, and learning from past experiences, it's wrong for me to assume that people's choices are uh, affected by how smart they are, right? Or 
all of these things, right? It's wrong for me to make those assumptions, even though they're totally reality-based and we all know they're true. But it's perfectly okay for Leighton to assume the idea that free will can be true and that people aren't making choices for determinative reasons at all. It's just, I chose it because I chose it. What's, why did you choose what you chose? Because me is basically the answer, but it's a non-answer. And so if, if me by asking why people, why somebody did something is just question begging and making assumptions, remember, you've done that every time you've ever asked somebody why they did something. And anytime somebody ever asked you why you did something, all you needed to say was because I did it or because me, and that would have been the perfect answer, right? For you to have given any other answer, such as I wanted to, or I was angry, or it didn't work last time, so I'm trying something new, or whatever that determinative reason is, if for you to give a determinative reason is for you to, I guess, commit a logical fallacy. So when the Bible, from cover to cover, says things like they hated knowledge and did not fear the Lord, or says things like because Pharaoh's heart was hard, he refused to let the people go, or says things like Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him, or says things like the, the mind on the set, the set on the flesh is hostile toward God and does not submit to his law. When it gives all these determinative reasons as behind why people do things, you just need to ask yourself who is actually making assumptions, right? Is it, am I just, am I actually making assumptions by asking a simple reality-based question? Why did somebody do something? Is that me making assumptions? Or is it making assumptions to assume that there's, there's no determinative reason required? That people can actually do things for no reason, right? Or no reason other than the fact that they did it. Which makes more of a mess out of reality when you stop and think about it. Which, which is actually properly resented by, represented by reality and the Bible. I think it's very clear that while Leighton is trying to accuse my side of making a question-begging fallacy by asking why somebody did something, um, he's actually in the process assuming his own idea of free will to be true without proving it, without justifying it, without giving examples in reality or in scripture. And so I think that's where the true false assumption lies. And so at the end of the day, he's basically saying, as you're about to hear, that uh, you did it because you did it, and you shouldn't even be asking the question. To, to ask why you did something, in this case, believe, is a fallacy in and of itself, because it assumes determinism. Oh my goodness. That means anytime you've ever asked anybody anything about why they did what they did, you are committing a fallacy. That's the only, that's the road you're going down. I mean, this is the absurdity when you try to deny blatant reality, right? When you try to deny determinism, you're denying the blatant reality that we all live in. And if it's a question-begging fallacy for me to ask why you believed and your neighbor did not, then it's a question-begging fallacy for you to ask anybody why they ever did anything. Because they could just say, I did it because I did it, and you shouldn't be asking me that. I believe that the cause of the choice is the chooser. The cause of determination is the determiner. And accept the mystery associated with the functioning of that free will and making its own determinations. Now, and there you have it. The mystery of free will. Okay. The mystery of free will is you make choices all the time, nonstop throughout your life, but you can't ever actually dissect your choices and look at why you did what you did. Because we all know if you do do that, you're going to admit determinism, refute free will, and we can't have that. So we just have to stop it there and say you did it because you did it and appeal to mystery. That's all you got. And I warned you guys in earlier episodes when I said that this is 
the end result. This is what you have to do. The, the farthest you can get in a free will position on, on, on a asking or I should say answering this why question, why did you believe, why did you do anything? The furthest the free will side can get is because I wanted to, and then when you ask why you wanted to, they're going to circle back and say they chose to want to. They chose, they wanted to choose, to wanted to choose, to wanted to choose, and it just goes on forever, right? Infinite regress, and they're okay with that because they can just call it a mystery. It's just a mystery, and yet this mystery makes an absurdity out of reality, as I've already shown. You've never, you don't, you don't, you don't conduct your life this way. You don't live your life this way. You don't answer questions this way about why you did particular things. Even when you can say, I don't know why I did what I did. All you're admitting when you say, I don't know, is that there was a determinative reason. You just don't know what it was, right? That's, and, and we cover that all in episode one. But I wanted you guys to hear the appeal to mystery. And now he's going to try to shift, basically say, yeah, I appeal to mystery, but that's okay because Calvinists do too. So it's it's a version of the, the fallacy that he hates so much, the YouTube fallacy. He's committing it right here, as you're about to hear. Calvinists will often challenge my appeal to mystery at this point, as if it's a weakness unique to my libertarian perspective. This is very short-sighted argument, however, which will be made abundantly clear in the next point. So Calvinists that are watching this and you're thinking to yourself, oh, will you appeal to the mystery of self-determination, as if you don't appeal to that same mystery under your worldview. You do. You may not recognize it yet, but stay tuned. Now, He's unfortunately right of most Calvinists, as he's about to lay out, and this is once again one of the primary reasons I'm making this podcast, is because there is no mystery, or should not be miss any, any, you know, put, putting forth of a mystery from the Calvinist side, according to the things he's about to say. Because this is literally, this is literally it. I'm appealing to the mystery of free will so that I can avoid giving determinative reasons, so that I can avoid the reality of determinism. I did it because I did it. You don't have a right to ask the question. And if you're going to challenge me, right, you need to remember that you're appealing to mystery too. Well, what is the mystery that we appeal to? Let's hear what Leighton has to say. Point four. Calvinists ultimately appeal to the same mystery, the mystery of free will. They appeal to it whether they recognize it or not. While the Calvinist may feel he has the upper hand while asking about the decisive factor in man's choice to reject God's word, the role reverses quite dramatically when the conversation shifts to man's first choice to reject God's words. Whether discussing Satan's first act of rebellion or Adam's first choice to sin, it becomes quite evident that the Calvinist has painted himself into a corner, so to speak, by denying libertarian free will. While on the one hand, arguing that mankind will always act in accordance with his nature, assuming that nature could not be libertarianly free, mind you, the Calvinist has no rational answer as to why Adam, or Lucifer before him, chose to rebel. And so... Calvinists have no rational answer as to why Adam chose to fall or Satan chose to fall. Um, and before I get to the answer, which is very simple and obvious, um, I just want to point out that this, this point that he is making about Calvinists appealing to mystery is unfortunately a true point because of what a lot of Calvinists say. Okay, And this is why in episode one and, and even since then, I have been so strict on pointing out that you need to properly define free will from the start. If you do not do that, and you move that reference point of freedom or free will f away from God onto other things, such as you're just doing what you want or you're acting according to your nature, it's not that those things aren't true. But if that is all you have in your definition of free will, you will be backed into a corner 
right on particular things and this right here is is that particular instance so and and what this shows is i hate to be offensive to my calvinist buddies right it's, but this is the only way i can call you to a higher level of consistency this is why these basic really really basic definitions of free will where you're well you're just acting according to your, to your nature uh your nature and so uh we sin because we have a sinful nature and uh before the fall adam didn't have a sinful nature so he could do either and blah 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 there's elements of truth there but when you keep it that simple and you're trying to you know leave out the part where god is in determinative determinative control of all of it right god god determines all things brings things all things about which can include or be by means of your your nature and your desires according to your nature it's all true it's all part of it but when you don't explain the whole god controlling it all part then they can paint you or back you into this corner of of mystery right so what do most calvinists say right when when people ask well what caused satan to fall unfortunately a lot of calvinists are so afraid to come out and say that god is the author of sin ooh, what a scary phrase uh, or that god is the cause of all things including sin that they will legitimately appeal to mystery as Leighton flowers here is pointing out and this is one of the things that has irritated me for over a decade and has caused me to start making these episodes, right? But back to this point. Why did God, why did Adam choose to fall? Do you remember the billiard ball example? Why did billiard ball beam move? Well, it's because I, as the creator of those, of those things, determined that it move. But I also have to ask, how did I determine it to move, right? I didn't snap my fingers and teleport billiard ball B into a different location. I might have been able to do that. But I chose to use Billiard Ball A to cause Billiard Ball B to move. Correct? Right. So when we look at the storyline level, why did Billiard Ball B move? It moved because Billiard Ball A smashed into it. So why did Adam fall? Ultimate answer, because God caused it. Sure, of course. Obviously, ul obvious ultimate answer is God caused it. But how did God cause it? Extremely important question to ask. And when you go down to the storyline level, you'll see that contrary to what Leighton wants you to believe about free will, there are determinative reasons as to why people do things. Adam fell because he wanted to partake in that tree. And what? And then you just ask what caused his desire. Well, and then you could talk about Eve deceived him or that Satan deceived Eve and so on and so forth. The point is when you start going down that road, it doesn't matter what answers you give. It's determinative answers. There's a determinative causal chain involved, right? And so the only point at which I would ever appeal to mystery, quote-unquote, is just the unknown information behind why somebody did something. But me not knowing why somebody did something as to the specific reason does not mean that I am ignoring or denying that there is a specific reason, right? Leighton Flowers is doing that right here and right now by saying there is no determinative reason, period, it doesn't exist, right? I'm saying it doesn't. It, I'm saying it does exist. There is a determinative reason behind why anybody does anything, but I might not know that reason. That's my the only level of mystery I, I, I'm ever going to admit to is, you know, for example, when you go back to Satan, why did Satan fall? I don't know. He for something caused him to have a prideful, sinful desire in his heart. Something caused him to do that. I don't know. What happened? I don't know if Satan had his own tree of knowledge and good and evil. I don't know what caused him to have that desire. Ultimately, God, no question there. But by means of what? I don't know. 
that is the only level of mystery I'll ever appeal to. But I will reject the idea that I need to be that I am appealing to a free will mystery. Satan didn't have free will. Adam didn't have free will. Nobody has free will because free will properly defined as freedom from God is logically impossible. As I've said over and over and over in these episodes, free will does not exist. It's logically impossible for God to give you free will in the first place. God must continuously uphold your existence at all times. It is impossible for God to metaphysically disconnect himself from you. And therefore, he has to be in control of you at all times, right? It's not a, it's not a choice that God makes. The necessary relationship of your existence to God is constant power, sustaining power, and control. In the exact same way, back to the billiard ball example, the only reason those billiard balls exist is because I created them by my power, right? And the only reason those billiard balls continue to exist is because I choose to exert the power to keep them in existence. I sustain them, which means that every moment of the billiard ball's existence and any interaction those billiard balls have is by my direct causative sustaining power as, as, as I in the ultimate transcendent position, creator sustainer position have, right? And that is precisely what is going on when we go back and even ask about why Satan fell. Why did Satan fall? There's two answers to that question. God caused it. God brought it about. How did God cause it? How did God bring it about? I might not know the specifics, but I know that there was a way he did, right? And so it can still be said on the storyline level that Satan sinned. Satan fell. Satan rebelled. Both of those things are true. I don't know how else to possibly explain it. But... But this is the problem uh, with with Calvinists giving lazy answers and being unwilling to commit out of fear uh, of being too heretical. Oh man, can't have God metaphysically related to sinful actions. That'd just be that'd be you know terrible for some reason, and so it causes them to appeal to mystery and allow people like Leighton Flowers to direct these types of arguments your way, right? So after what I've just said. The fact that free will doesn't exist. God's always been in control. Why did why did Adam choose to sin? There's two answers to that question. Number one, God caused it. Number two, how did God cause it on the storyline level? Adam sinned because, and then you can follow the chain. He wanted to. Why did he want to? Because Eve. Why did Eve? Because Satan. Why did Satan? Mystery there. I'll admit, I don't know why Satan did, but it's not a free will mystery. It's not Satan just did it because he did it. There was a determinative reason there, and whether or not you know the determinative reason does not change the fact that it is there, right? You've made plenty of decisions in your life that when people ask you, you just, man, I don't know what I was thinking. I just kind of did it, and I don't know why. That does not mean you had free will. It does not mean there was not a determinative reason there all along. And now he's going to quote, he's going to quote John Piper and Sproul, but but just listen to these quotes and, and hear what's being said. For instance, John Piper openly admits how God freely hardens and yet preserves human accountability, we are not explicitly told. Now, how God hardens people, I guess he means hardens people's hearts and preserves human accountability. Um, Again, made episode three on that. Uh, Human responsibility and accountability is not this rule that God needs to play around. And so we just don't know how God could harden someone's heart, cause them to sin, and then hold them responsible. It's just this mystery. It's not a mystery at all. So I don't think Piper is doing us a favor here by appealing to mystery on something that's not a mystery. It is the same mystery as to how the first sin entered the universe. How does a sinful disposition arise in a good heart? The Bible never tells us. Okay, and I again, I just appealed to that, I guess, similar mystery of I don't know what precisely caused it on the storyline level, but I know something did, right? And it wasn't free will. So 
Leighton's about to say that by me admitting I don't know what caused the sinful desire, therefore I'm admitting free will. No, 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 no. Because remember, according to Leighton, free will is you did it because you did it, and there's no determinative reason. I'm saying something determined Adam to have that sinful desire. Something determined Satan to have that sinful desire. I don't know what that something is. I don't know how God caused what he caused, but I know God caused it, and I know Satan sinned. I know something caused Adam to sin, right? And Adam sinned. I am not appealing to free will when I admit that that aspect of mystery. R.C. Sproul similarly teaches, quote, But Adam and Eve were not created fallen. They had no sin nature. They were good creatures with a free will. They were created. They weren't created fallen. That's true. They didn't have a sin nature when they were created. That's true. But they were created with a free will. We all know what Sproul means by that. He means that they were created with the ability to act according to their desires. That definition of free will is not the same definition of free will that Leighton would use. Got to keep this all in mind. Yet they chose to sin. Why? I do not know, nor have I found anyone else that does know, end quote. Okay. Again, if what Sproul means by that is, I don't know the exact determinative reason why. Well, duh. The Bible doesn't tell us, right? Why did Satan fall? The Bible doesn't tell us what caused him to fall or why he fell, right? But we know that he did, and we know that something must have caused him to do it, right? This So, so... In admitting that there's a mystery of what that something is does not mean that we're denying that that something is there. In other words, what are Calvinists, what are their mystery, what's, what mystery are John Piper and R.C. Sproul appealing to? The mystery of free will. Absolutely incorrect. And I can't say it any more clear. Not knowing what caused Satan to fall is not denying that something did cause Satan to fall. You see what I'm saying? And he's trying to paint this as, we're appealing to free will too. And he's, I'm going to give him half credit here because sadly there are Calvinists that do. Sadly there are. They just say, well, man does have free will and it's just a mystery and it's disgusting. I can't stand it. And it's why we're doing this podcast. But the other half of me says that this is a false flippening. Again, he's trying to flip this around on us and say, oh, you're appealing to free will. I, as a consistent Calvinist, am not. There was something that caused Satan, determinatively caused Satan and Adam and everybody, you know, every choice has ever been made. There is determinative reasons to them. Just because at times I might not know what that determinative reason is, does not mean that determinative reason is not there. It does not mean that your magical free will where there's no determinative reason is, is somehow becomes true and that I am somehow appealing to free will. That is absolutely false. That's what they're appealing to, okay? As you can clearly see, the Calvinist has just, quote, unquote, kicked the can down the road, so to speak, when it comes to appealing to the mystery of free moral will. They eventually appeal to the same mystery that we do, all the while thinking they are taking the higher moral ground by giving God all the credit for Christians, the Christian's choice to repent and trust in Christ. In reality, however, by not accepting the mystery of man's free will, the Calvinist has created a new mystery that is simply not afforded by the text of Scripture. And, and again, I don't know how you can think that we're appealing to the same mystery as you. Your mystery is there is no determinative reason, and so I just did it because I did it, and I don't understand, you know, I don't need to explain why. It's just a mystery. My mystery is sometimes I do things and I don't know why, but I do know that there was determinative reasons. So my mystery, your mystery is just pure illogic. It's not actually a mystery. It's a contradiction, right? It's a paradox. It's, it's illogical. You did it because you did it, and there's no determinative reason goes against all of reality. Um, 
my mystery is just you don't know something, right? There's you're lacking in particular information, but but the information that you do have is not contradictory, right? This problem is made evident by turning the question around and asking this of the Calvinist: Why has your lost friend continued to hate and reject God? Um, here's our why question again, guys. Remember, there's two answers. What's the first one? Ultimately, God caused it. God's in control of it. God determined it, planned it, purposed it. But when you look at the storyline level, why do people reject God? Continue to reject God? Well, because they hate God. They're hostile to God. They love their sin. They hate what is good. They're, they've got all the tools. They just want to be using them for other stuff, as we've already covered. There's two answers to that question, and it's only when you ignore or blur or think there's only one way to answer that question that you begin to try to build these emotional arguments. Most Calvinists do not want to admit that the reprobate of their system, the non-elect of their system, ultimately hates and rejects God because God first hated and rejected them. And the free will side does not want to admit that ultimately people hate God because God created them in such a way that they would. He created them in such a way that he knew they would. Chose to create them anyways. Could have created them differently, or not at all. But God chooses to create people he knows will only ever hate him and end up in hell, and therefore, ultimately, they can't do otherwise. And that's what free will stuck with. Calvinists would rather focus on the elect who are saved by deterministic means, while ignoring the inevitable conclusions about the non-elect who remain damned for the same deterministic reason. Again, um, as a consistent Calvinist, I have no problem affirming the existence of the reprobate. I have no problem affirming that God has created all things for, the per for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. I... Absolutely affirm double predestination equal ultimacy. Um, equal ultimacy is often often misrepresented as dealing with the ways in which God carries out election and rep reprobation. Equal ultimacy simple, simply means that God has elected and reprobated, that God has predestined people to heaven and predestined people to hell. How those people get there is certainly important, but has nothing to do with equal ultimacy. Ultimately, God is in control of all these things. And I openly affirm this. So I know he talks to a lot of Calvinists that don't and that are wishy-washy and really soft. And one of these days, he might get around to those of us who are more, more hard and strict. In my opinion, this is a dilemma unique to their worldview, not a tension created by the teachings of Scripture. So the Calvinist... A dilemma, a dilemma unique to our worldview. And yet I've been pointing out episode after episode, over and over, that both sides are stuck with these ultimate questions. If you think that people being predestined to heaven and predestined to hell is something unique to Calvinism, you have not taken five minutes on your couch alone with the TV off to consider these issues. I'm sorry. You just haven't. Or if you have, when you hit these issues of the obvious fact that God creates people knowing they'll end up in heaven, God creates people knowing they'll end up in hell, and by creating them predestines those things, if you haven't considered that simple ABC123 logical fact, then, or if you have, I should say, you've just closed your eyes to it, right? This, is, it, this, this idea that these, these questions and quote-unquote problems are only unique to Calvinism is, is just absurd. ...rejects the mystery of libertarian freedom only to adopt another even more difficult mystery one that arguably brings into question the holiness, righteousness, and trustworthiness of our God, namely the suggestion that God is implicit in the termination of moral evil. And I've already covered in previous episodes why God can cause, not just not just set up dominoes and 
determine that evil is going to come to pass someday, but actually by his own sustaining causative power, bring it about and not be evil. I've, I've covered that. Don't have time for it here. As evidenced by John Calvin's own teachings when he says, quote, how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evils come to be not by his will, but by his permission. It is quite frivolous refuge to say that God obtusely permits them when scripture shows him not only willing, but the author of them. Absolutely correct. Who does not tremble at these judgments with which God works in the hearts of even the wicked, whatever he will, rewarding them nonetheless according to desert? Absolutely correct. Calvin's just saying, hey, look, God is in control of all things. There are explicit examples in Scripture where God predestines sinful actions, God brings about sinful actions, God causes sinful actions, and still holds people responsible for those actions. Pharaoh is a prime example. I know you think you've got answers, judicial hardening, blah, blah, blah. There is no way around the case of Pharaoh. God hardens his heart. It doesn't matter why or when or how. God takes an action that results in Pharaoh sinning and then destroys him for that action. Period. You lose. It's over. Again, it is quite clear from the evidence of Scripture that God works in the hearts of men to incline their wills just as he will. Yep, that's what some, several verses explicitly say. Whether too good for his mercy's sake or too evil according to their merits. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. End quote. Which mystery is more difficult to swallow? There's no mystery in anything I've put forth. One that seemingly suggests mankind might have some part to play in reconciliation, which is defined as the bringing together of two parties, or the one that suggests a perfectly holy God is the author of evil, that which divided the two parties to begin with. More importantly, which of these mysteries does the Bible actually afford? And I'm telling you right now, the Bible nowhere ever says that God gave you free will, freedom from him. The Bible nowhere ever says that you can be free from him at any point of your existence, even for one nanosecond. And it's not just that the Bible doesn't say it and leaves it as a mystery. The Bible absolutely 100% denies the possibility of free will with verses like Hebrews 1.3, that God is always upholding your existence, Acts 17, in God you live and move and have your being, and Colossians 1.17, that in God all things consist. These verses completely exclude the possibility of your beloved mystery. Point five. Better by, by divinely permitted choice or a determinative divine decree is still better. Let me restate that and let that sink in. Better, if you're going to call a choice better, okay, better whether it's by divinely permitted choice, in other words, it's a choice God allowed for you to make freely, or a determinative divine decree, a choice that God determined for you to make, is still a better choice. Absolutely agree. So this fifth and final point is sort of what we hinted at earlier. Obviously, it's better to believe than not believe. And whether or not it was a free will choice to believe or God determined it to believe, it's still better, right? Better is still better. And no argument here. I think we can all agree that it's better to believe the gospel than it is to trade the truth of God in for lies, right? We can all agree with that. Whether one believes because they were sovereignly made to do so by a work of irresistible grace or whether they were graciously given the ability to do so freely does not change the fact that believers are doing something, quote unquote, better. Correct. But, as we will discover in the next point, better does not mean worthy of salvation. So, I thought that was point two or three. We already covered the point where worthy, you're not meriting your salvation, didn't we? Now, we, non-Calvinist or provisionist, are too often accused that we could or would boast in our salvation because we affirm that it's our responsibility to freely respond in faith to the gracious Holy Spirit-right gospel appeal. Is this really boastworthy? Let's think about it. We are the ones who teach that anyone can believe the gospel. Why would we boast? And, and again, actually Calvinists teach in the natural faculty sense that anyone can believe the gospel as well. We deny it in the moral sense. Once again. Doing something anyone is able to do. 
Think about that. Why would I boast in my ability to stand up right now? Okay. So why? here's his argument. Why would you boast in something that everybody has the ability to do? So even though I have the same ability, right, it's bringing, you have to ask the moral question of why are you standing up? You can't just say, well, I can stand up, so why would I boast in that? You're boasting in why you did a particular thing, right? And once again, coming back to the argument, right, why would you, why would you boast in, in believing the gospel uh, when everybody could do that? Well, number one, it's better to believe the gospel, right? It's the better thing to do. This is why you can't just consider a, a natural ability apart from a moral component or a moral aspect to the use of that ability. You can't just say, well, I, I have the ability to stand up, so why would I boast in that? Well, you might not boast in the ability to stand up, but you might boast in the way you stand up. You might boast in why you stood up and someone else didn't, right? So you're not really avoiding the argument here if, you, if, if what I've been saying is true, that you grant the distinction between a natural faculty ability and a moral ability. So the point here is you're not, you're not really boasting in the ability. You're not boasting in the faculty that everybody has. You're boasting in your usage of that faculty, right? Everybody can believe, true. But why did you believe? Why did you rightly use that faculty and somebody else did not? Right? Almost anybody can stand up right now. What? I boast in my ability to breathe. I'm boasting in my ability to hear or to think or to see. Why would I boast in something that anyone and everyone can do? Okay? You wouldn't boast in something that anyone can do. Well, and you're not really, you wouldn't be boasting in the ability itself, but you, you could be boasting in the way that you use that ability. Right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that a lot of people can do, but different people are using those abilities in different ways and the boasting is found in the ways that they're using them. So again, going back to the idea of faith, everybody can believe natural faculty wise, everybody can believe that's true. But why are you using your faculty of belief rightly while they're using it wrongly? That's where the area of boasting comes in, right? Is it because you're smart? Well, again, I'm not, I'm not allowed to give determinative reasons because according to you, they don't exist. But the argument is why are you using your faculty right and they aren't? It's not that you're boasting in, ah, ha, 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 I can believe and you can't. Everybody can believe in things. We're talking about believing in God, and the point is that you believe because you love God. You wanted to believe in God. They don't believe because they still hate God, right? That's the point. And so the grounds for boasting is not in the ability itself. It's in the way the ability is used. That's, that's the point. And that's how you, that's the only way you can really pick this particular final point apart. We believe anyone can believe the Bible. Anybody can trust in God. Anybody can follow him. Anybody can. So why would you boast in that? Uh, and so do I, as a consistent Calvinist, very extreme Calvinist, so do I believe everybody can believe if you're talking about natural faculties. Everybody can believe. Everybody can be humble. Everybody can obey God. Everybody can love God if they wanted to. They just don't want to. And so as the Bible uses multiple examples of moral inability, I can boldly say that man is unable to believe because they hate God and don't want to believe. Man is unable to uh, love God because they hate God and don't want to. Man is unable to humble themselves because they hate God and are prideful, so on and so forth. You have to be able to allow for the reality of talking about ability in different senses. For example, a great singer is given a rare gift from birth, God-given gift to beautifully sing, right? And they can become proud or boastful due to that unique gift. 
But if everyone was born able to sing that well, whether they wanted to or not, or whether they choose, chose to or not, then boasting in that ability would not make any rational sense. Actually, it would, once again, if you consider, so everybody's born with the ability to sing, but when you bring the moral aspect in as to when it's right or wrong to sing, or if maybe I use my ability to make a living, whereas you just squander your ability and don't make anything of it, can't I be said to be smarter than you by properly using that ability once again? So I, I, I understand what he's trying to get at by, by, by making this point, but it's just, it's, it's moving it into a separate category and it's ignoring the usage of that ability, right? So sure, people who are born with abilities that other people don't have might boast in those abilities. That's a separate, completely irrelevant, in my opinion, point to what we're getting at here. Everybody has the ability to believe in God, you know, hypothetically in terms of having the faculty. The problem is that they don't want to. Why? So why are some people believing properly? Why are some people properly utilizing the faculty that everybody has, belief, properly, whereas others are improperly utilizing that faculty of belief to believe in false things? That's the question. We're talking about the usage of the ability, not the ability itself. Notice this quote here. I don't believe any true Christian from either sociological camp would boast in such things. Okay, and I have an article there that talks about why true Christians don't boast by by, by the logic of what it means to humble oneself. Um, and that's a fair point. And I would like to share that point, that uh, opinion, that view. Right. Uh, even though my argument is saying that the free will side would have grounds for boasting amongst other people, not not before God, but amongst other people, I don't believe that that Christian, free will Christians are boasting amongst other people, okay? So he's being clear, coming from his point, he's trying to flip this on Calvinism and say that we have grounds for boasting, blah, 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 but he doesn't believe that we are, right? Fair enough, I appreciate that, and I want to have the same viewpoint coming back the other way, that I am not saying that free will people, you know, are boasting. It's not my, not my, not my point here. But at the end of the day, guys, you got to remember something. He's trying to flip this around on Calvinists and say that we are the ones who have grounds for boasting because God made us into ontologically better people. I've already refuted that, shown that God did not make us ontologically better. He changed our hearts so that we would use, properly use the tools, the faculties that everybody has always had. But at the end of the day, God gets the credit, right? At least we can credit God with, again, on that storyline level, God gets all the credit for the good. Right? Man is credited with sin on the storyline level. Man is the one sinning. And yet when somebody turns from their sin, believes in God, it's because of what God worked on the storyline level. Yes, God worked those things in us, and therefore he gets the, the, the credit. He gets all the credit. And so we're basically at the end here. He, I'm going to save some time by, by, by sp sparing the, the, the point where he goes through and reads a bunch of a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of verses where the Bible is calling us to do things, calling us to humble ourselves, calling us to repent, calling us to believe, calling us to do these sorts of things. And we got to remember what I pointed out in episode one, guys. This demonstrates and proves their assumption of free will. Because they can list off a bunch of verses that say, look here, somebody humbled themselves, or look there, God told you to humble yourself. And yet those verses are not actually addressing why people humbled themselves. Now, Leighton, as you've already heard, has set himself up as to him not even thinking he needs to answer that why question. To Leighton Flowers, the why question is irrelevant. Shouldn't even be asked in the first place because free will is true. He's assumed it. Because free will is true, 
I don't need to give determinative reasons as to why I did my, do anything. So when I read all these verses where people are humbling themselves or repenting or believing, since I've assumed free will, I don't need to give the determinative reasons as to why those people might have been doing that. But what if determinism is true, right? I'll tell you right now, what if free will is true? The Bible doesn't even teach it to begin with, right? But what if determinism is true? What if the Bible actually teaches that the reason man humbles themselves? Sure, they do, but why do they do it? Can that question be answered by Scripture? What if the Bible teaches that God is the one who actually works that in them, that God humbles them? What if the Bible teaches that the reason people believe is because God works, that, that God grants that they believe, that it is the work of God that they believe in Jesus whom, they, whom he has sent? What if the Bible teaches that God is working all things after the counsel of his will, including our entire salvation, including our faith, including our humbleness, including our repentance, including our confession, right? And guess what? It just so happens that the Bible does teach those things. So at the end of the day, when somebody goes through and lists off 150 million verses where people are humbling themselves or believing or repenting or doing all sorts of things, the free will side assumes free will when looking at those verses. The Calvinist side assumes determinism when looking at those verses. But which of those assumptive lenses, if you want to call them that, which of those lenses by which all those verses are being read through is actually justified by Scripture? And as I've always said, zero verses teach that you have been given free will, that you can have free will, that at any point in your life you are free from God. Zero verses teach that. And yet on the other side, to back up the Calvinistic lens, why do people hum themselves? Because God caused it. He worked it. Why do people believe? Because God caused it and he worked it. Why do people confess? Because God caused it and he worked it. All the way down the line. We've got all those verses. So let's finish this out by just recapping uh, the five points very quickly and reiterating some of the main points that I think are important. Point number one, Leighton tried to flip the argument on Calvinists and point out that we are the ones who actually have God making people better, ontologically better. And I explained how, depending on how you're using the word ontologically, the important thing to understand is that God is not giving you this faculty of faith that other people don't have, right? So that you are now able to do something that they couldn't do even if they wanted to. Instead, God is changing your heart and changing your moral disposition towards himself so that you will desire and want to properly use the faculty of faith that everyone has always had from the start. Just just as Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him, fallen man cannot come to God because they hate him. Their inability to come does not arise from a lack of faculties. It arises from a lack of willingness to properly use their faculties, which is the result of their hostile disposition toward God. And again, even if you could, at the end of the day, somehow prove that in Calvinism, God makes people ontologically better, well, at least we still have God making the difference and getting the credit at the end of the day. He also tries to undercut the argument itself by claiming that if you want to credit God with all the good, then you must also credit God with all the bad. And I explained in detail how depending on which angle you consider things from, whether it's the transcendent creator-sustainer position of God versus the storyline level of God, this may or may not be true. Once again, on the transcendent sustainer level, God is the cause of all things, including the bad, right? But this is not a moral category to begin with. This is simply understanding God's metaphysical relationship to what he has created and recognizing the, big, the biblical truth that nothing can even come to pass in the first place, including sin, unless God provides the, the sustaining power by which it can come to pass. Is God sinning in doing this? Does it make God evil? 
to sustain sinners while they sin? This is a question that both sides need to answer, right? And the Calvinist answer, as I have put forth throughout these episodes, is, of course not. It does not make God evil, nor is God sinning when he sustains sinners while they sin, because sin and evil are defined by the breaking of laws. Biblically speaking, sin is the breaking of the law of God. And so there's no law that stands above God. There's no law that was given to God that says he can or cannot cause sin or can or cannot sustain sustain sinners while they sin. God's law was given to us in time. It exists on the storyline level, and therefore sin itself, by the definition of what sin is, exists on the storyline level as well, which brings us to the storyline level. In the same way, back to the billiard ball example, in the same way it can be said that billiard ball A is responsible for billiard ball B moving because it smashed into it, it can most certainly be said that man is responsible for sin. On the storyline level, man is the one sinning. Man is the one breaking God's laws. Man is the one who is having sinful desires and taking actions based upon those sinful desires. Therefore, man is morally responsible for the bad on the storyline level. So we can credit on the storyline level. We can credit God with the good and credit man with the bad. And it's not a contradiction to God causing both the good and the bad as the transcendent creator sustainer. It is not a contradiction. And if you want to ignore this distinction, if you want to ignore the distinction between God and the transcendent position and a storyline level and pretend that this distinction does not exist, um, you're just basically considering God as just another thing alongside you in creation. Right? This is a very false way of, of viewing God. And you completely destroy mo- most of what the Bible has to say about God's role throughout history, especially concerning man's sinful history. Right? How do you answer God upholding sinners while they sin? How do you answer God not stopping sin when he could stop it? How do you answer God taking actions, such as hardening hearts, which results in sin, and then punishing people for those very sins? How do you answer God being said to be bringing, as I mentioned earlier, the rain or the wind or the snow, if there's not two ways to answer those questions? It will be impossible for you to answer these questions without considering God as the transcendent creator and sustainer. Point number two, he says that believing in God does not merit salvation. Confessing that you need a Savior does not save you. This is absolutely true. We had no argument here, and I encourage my Calvinist friends to stop using this argument to make it seem like or attempt to make free will merit salvation. This is not the point of this argument. When we are talking about you being better than your unbelieving neighbor, it's you versus him, not you meriting something before God. We're talking about the horizontal relationship of you to other people. We're not talking about your vertical relationship between you and God when we use this argument. Point number three, he tried to accuse the argument itself of being a question-begging fallacy when we ask, why did you believe? Because supposedly we are assuming a determinative answer is required. The question we are asking, first of all, once again, is assuming that your claim of free will is true in the first place. We, Our question, our argument, is based upon your claim, that nothing outside of the person determined their choice, and therefore we're asking what the reason is that is found within the person. We're just asking for a reason within the person. We're not even asking for a reason outside the person. We're asking for a reason in the person, right? Were they in a better mood? Were they smarter? Were they more spiritually sensitive? But if you noticed, Leighton wouldn't even give a reason found in the person as to why one believed and one didn't. He merely says they did because they did and appeals to mystery. Point number four, he immediately tries to justify his claim to mystery by saying that Calvinists appeal to mystery too, right? And not just any mystery, but actually accuses Calvinists of claiming a free will mystery. And as I said, um, half of this is the fault of lazy Calvinists who unfortunately do in fact appeal to a sort of free will mystery. Um, And it makes me sad to hear them and see them do that. But at the end of the day, there is all the difference in the world between saying that I don't know what caused Satan to sin on the storyline level, just admitting 
a lack of knowledge. But knowing that something did cause Satan to sin, right? I do know that God, ultimately God caused Satan to sin by means of something on the storyline level. Not knowing what that determinative reason is does not mean that I am denying the reality or existence of a determinative reason. Leighton, on the other hand, has more than just a mystery on his hands. He has more than just a mere lack of knowledge regarding why people choose. He goes so far as to deny that there are determinative reasons behind why people choose in the first place. You can't answer a why question by restating the fact that led to that question in the first place. You can't answer why someone did something by saying, because they did it. This is more than just mystery. This is illogical. And good luck explaining how you're not left with free will choices being random or arbitrary. I find it very amusing how Leighton over time has continually argued that Calvinism's view of God in election specifically has God being random or arbitrary because God's choice of who to save is not influenced by or determined by factors outside of himself. But isn't that the, defini the definition of free will that we just heard Leighton claim for himself? The idea that nothing beyond the determiner made the determination? So if that makes God's choices random or arbitrary, doesn't that make your choices random or arbitrary as well? Doesn't it therefore follow that every free will choice you have ever made was random or arbitrary? And there's only two ways to answer that, and they're both losers. You either attempt to hold on to your argument against Calvinism's view of God and election, being random or arbitrary, by admitting that your choices therefore are random and arbitrary as well. Or you attempt to explain how your free will choices are not random or arbitrary, and therefore undercut your entire argument against Calvinism's view of God and election as being random or arbitrary. This is what happens when you try to take something that only God can have, true free will, and try to claim it for yourself. You tie yourself in knots. And isn't it amazing how Leighton can look over at God and consider free will for God to be random or arbitrary and consider it to be this sort of negative thing that can actually be raised as an argument against Calvinism? But when claiming free will for himself, it's just a perfectly acceptable mystery. Nothing to see here, no problems at all. I have always found this interesting. And at the end of the day, I would love to hear how Leighton would explain how his free will choices, or his free will choice to believe in this case, was not random or arbitrary, right? Because any reason he gives for why he believed and someone else did not, even if found strictly in himself, is going to provide the grounds for boasting over against other people and therefore will lose the very argument that started this all. Right? You believed and your friend did not because of something in you, and therefore how were you not better? Which brings us to point five. He says better by free will or better by determinism is still better. We cannot disagree with this last point. It is most certainly true. And all I can do is point out how he tries to, in this fifth point, mix or confuse the difference between boasting in an ability, such as singing, boasting in the ability itself, versus boasting in the use of an ability. There's all the difference in the world, and the argument put forth by Calvinists is once again not the idea that you could believe but your friend could not, in terms of faculties, but rather you both could believe, so why did you and your friend did not? Why did you properly use your faculty, why he did not, and how is there not grounds for boasting? So hopefully you can see how we have tried to address all of the various angles in which Leighton Flowers tries to pick this argument apart. He tries multiple times to flip this argument back around on Calvinists without realizing that even if Calvinism and the idea of determinism didn't exist, the argument still stands and needs to be answered, right? We can grant everything that Leighton says about free will and still press the issue, right? If, if the cause of the choice is the chooser, if the cause of belief is the believer, then why did one person believe and another did not? If you say no reason needs to be given in the first place, then how do you avoid accusations of randomness or arbitrariness? And if you attempt to refute the accusations of randomness and arbitrariness by giving a reason as to why 
one believed and another did not, even if that reason is found only in the person themselves, you admit the entire point of the argument. Because whatever reason you find in one person's believing was therefore not found in the person who did not believe, and therefore admit that something was to be found in the believer that made them better. So I think that's going to do it for this particular episode. Um, sorry it went so long, um, but I responded to the points I thought needed to be responded to and explained in detail what needed to be explained. Um, I have a next episode planned. I'm going to be addressing the idea of fatalism. What is fatalism? We're going to go through a bunch of different definitions of fatalism, and we're going to see which definitions are uh, even slightly applicable to Calvinism, if there are any. And we're also going to show how uh, some definitions of fatalism are actually applicable to any Christian system as well, which I think a lot of people are going to find interesting. And we're going to do some interactions again with uh, Leighton Flowers. So again, hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully uh, next episode will come sooner than later. We'll see.